0: Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched All the President's Men.
1: The Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein uncover the details of the Watergate scandal that led to President Richard Nixon's resignation. Journalism, the movie. Journalism, the movie. It's the first time we've had this type of movie,
0: though. hmm
1: This is a cinema history classic. I am... I'm willing to bet that when we talked about Glory being a staple of extra credit movies, today, this is probably an extra credit movie Mm -hmm. because, hot damn, what a film. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason it, it has stood up on the test of time as just a really compellingly told story. And I remember seeing this. So I got interested in that era of politics in high school, I remember and i it, it came circuitously by reading hunter s thompson mm-hmm. and i read fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72 which is all about the 1972 presidential campaign okay and it's got a, a bunch of hunter s thompson stuff in it but one of the interesting things in reading that was learning about how messed up the democratic party was as an institution okay and how that was the last time an actual progressive ever really won the nomination for democratic president. Okay. And then this was the postscript which is the Nixon fuckery. Yeah. I really
0: I really like that that as a uh, way to describe it. The Nixon
1: fuckery. Well, the term rat fucking yeah. comes from this. Okay. And they talk about it in the movie, but that's not just something made for the movie. That is literally what the young, straight-out-of-college lawyers that they hired for the campaign called all the dirty tricks they played as part of the Nixon campaign. Hmm. Rat-fucking. Eloquent. I mean, and that was printed in the Washington Post because it was the direct quote and term from from these guys. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about this movie is that it's not a movie about Watergate. It's a movie about the two guys writing the story. Yes, yes. And that's what makes it so fascinating because it's executed flawlessly. We now do this kind of in the opposite way where we introduce some interesting characters, but it's all in service of the big story. What made all the president's men great and what still makes it a great watch is that they go, yes, we." there's this huge story that we all pretty much know the basic background of. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do is show you how these two schmucks mm. figured it out. Mm -hmm. that's a compelling movie yes that it is because it's this weird web of stuff the whole watergate scandal is it's complex only in as much as how the players are involved and how it was hidden and obfuscated under layers and layers of shit Mm -hmm. but again deep throat even says it halfway through they're dumb and they're Mm -hmm. sloppy the thing that the Nixon administration proved, and it's funny because, you know, we can talk about how recent administrations have even seemed dumber, but it was because it was right in front of our faces. The difference with these guys was they're just as dumb. In fact, some of them are the same assholes in this story who did this shit later on for the Trump administration. Cough, cough, Roger Stone, cough, cough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the difference with these guys is they had the full backing and support of most of the political sphere. Hmm. So they would do stupid shit and they'd get caught and everybody would be fine covering for them. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing until we nearly broke the entire country
0: uh, Yeah. Okay.
2: out of
1: sheer stupidity. The most enraging, maddening part about Watergate is that it barely made an actual dent in an election that Nixon was gonna run away clean with,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no matter what. Mm. But he was so paranoid yeah. and such a despot that he was going. He didn't just need to win; he had to crush them. And thus we get all of this bullshit. That being said, we're not gonna talk a lot about Watergate while we talk about this movie. Okay. I would highly suggest for anyone the book that this is based on and it's written by Woodward and Bernstein. It's a great book. It's incredible. And we'll talk about the writing of the movie because the ri- our, our, our screenwriter made a very specific choice on the film he was going to tell. Mm-hmm. But the book does a great job not only explaining the scandal, but unfolding the scandal bit by bit, thread by thread, as they figured it out. Okay. What the movie does so well mm-hmm. is it captures these two dudes, very young, totally different, totally at odds with one another, but very quickly both realizing something deeply, deeply fucked up is going on at the White House. Mm -hmm. And it makes it even weirder because like Bob Woodward's a Republican. He would have, he was a Nixon supporter. Really? Okay. I mean, he was, he's, for his entire life, he's been a Republican, but when he smells bullshit, he's got to pull that thread. Okay. And that is... Between, you know, Woodward and Bernstein's different politics, They're different styles, there's all these unique factors. And that's what I think makes this movie so good, is that it's about these two dudes. Mm-hmm. It's not about the scandal. It's not about the politics. It's not about those machinations. It's about these two guys pulling at a thread, finding something going deeper and deeper and deeper, and eventually getting to the point where they're like, Are we going to get assassinated for this shit? Yeah. How deep does this go and how scary does this get? Because Deep Throat makes it very fucking clear what they're willing to do to try to hide this. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I don't know that Deep Throat was necessarily correct on that, but I mean, there's shit in the Nixon tapes talking about Woodward and Bernstein specifically by name.
0: Oh, yeah, they knew who they were because they were a threat to them.
1: And what they what they might need to do about them. Mm -hmm. And to watch the story just through these two characters makes it so interesting. Not to mention that on top of that, then you get such a such a smart, realistic portrayal of everything. And I mean, we'll talk about the details that they put into this, but like they went way down to the finest detail in filming, in staging things, in how they set it. All of it was done to a T. And I think that was really important both to Woodward and Bernstein. It's like, well, if you're going to tell our story, you got to do it right.
0: Yeah. This is too important of a story to not make it... I mean, it has to be accurate. It, it can't be just willy-nilly.
1: And it... It's funny because, like the the movie that came out in twenty seventeen, The Post, mm-hmm. Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, all of them, it's actually like a prequel, a direct prequel to this movie. Oh, okay, because that happened in seventy one. The Pentagon mm-hmm. Papers get linked. They they publish what Daniel Ellsberg says. The Pentagon and the government are going to threaten to shout him down. And the Pentagon Papers up and uh, up until the point that we get to in this movie, Watergate, like. We even talk about it between the editors. Watergate's not a story. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like y'all have some suggestions of some weird shit, but there's nothing here that actually looks like it's an actual story. Okay. (laughs) It's like people are doing some corrupt stuff in government. Big whoop. Like, (laughs) it's the president's campaign election. Election shit happens all the time. It's not until they put the two and two together that the slush fund is coming directly through the White House that things start to pick up. Mm. But the Pentagon Papers was like a full-on national security threat because it it exposed that the Vietnam War was a complete loss, and they knew it. So it was a much bigger deal. Yeah. And then this little break-in happens at the mm-hmm. Watergate Hotel, and nobody thinks anything of it except Bob Woodward. He's just like, this seems weird. Mm-hmm. And why is, why is there some high-priced attorney coming in for these five- criminals. And who are these guys? Yeah.
3: Mr. Starkey was very helpful. Four Cuban-Americans and another man, James W. McCord. I told you inside. I have nothing more to say. I understand that. What I don't understand is how you got here. Well, I assure you there's nothing very mysterious involved. Well, but a little while ago I was talking to a couple of the lawyers assigned to represent the burglars. So? They never would have been assigned to represent the burglars had anyone known that the burglars had arranged for their own counsel. Only the burglars couldn't have arranged for their own counsel since they never even made a phone call. So if no one asked you to be here, why are you here?
1: And then he's just pulling at thread after thread. And that's what's really cool about their story is the whole thing is it starts really small, but the further they go, the bigger it gets. So the budget for this movie was $8,500,000. In today's money, that's around $44,000,000. Okay. That is not an unsubstantial amount of money for a movie like this. No. It made $70,600,000, the equivalent of $368,000,000 today. A runaway success. Yeah. <laughs> People like this. It told this story because everybody had read the story. Mm-hmm. It, it was such a huge fucking deal. And especially by now, because Nixon had resigned, it was two years later. Okay. So, you know, this is all well after things come out. But this then puts it in a narrative where I think people can understand. It's it's a little bit like the big short in some ways. Okay. Not in how it's made, but in the fact that it makes a story that I think could be really complicated for people to grapple with mm-hmm. because of all the moving parts and people and makes it really digestible because it's a narrative. Okay. Unlike, you know, something like the Pentagon Papers, which is a huge, dense pile of documents made by the Rand Corporation, Mm -hmm. which is a deep, like, academic study, this is an actual story that bit by bit you unravel. It's a mystery. Hmm. And so it's incredibly captivating. (laughs) And Woodward and Bernstein, the cool part about this is that they then take that put it in a story where they're the protagonists mm-hmm. and then weave the actual story that they learned through that and the movie does a great job of capturing that essence i think that's
0: fair well i think the history is very well presented and then i think that they they do weave in like the the fact that these guys lives were very much in danger the fact that the newspaper was kind of like don't do this like let's bury it and then it was like oh no we can't ignore this and like it it's all those little threads that get woven together very well and then like the figuring out like the little bits that they got wrong or versus like what they got right it's yes. just it's it's really complex it's a very weird web
1: so interestingly enough the person most responsible for this film out of everybody is not our writer not our directors and mm. not Woodward and Bernstein okay it's robert redford
0: really okay
1: so, this is going to be Redford's first time stepping into a producer role in like, like this. Really? I'm sure he produced and exec produced other things because he was involved, mm-hmm. but this is his first big, like, we got to make this a movie.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: So, Redford was in contact with Woodward and Bernstein before they had ever finished their book. Really? Because he was an avid reader of the Post. Hmm. Okay. He loved their investigation. And he, he advised them, he said, look, when you write about this, don't write about your reporting. Don't just give me the facts and compile your articles. You need to write about how you did this. Because what he realized was, there's a really cool story here. Mm-hmm. And he loved their dynamic. He said, quote, one guy was a wasp, the other guy was a Jew. One guy was a Republican, the other was a radical liberal. They really didn't care for each other, but they had to work together. And I thought... That dynamic is character driven, and I liked that. Unquote. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's cool. He saw so much of like what they're doing is so crucially important, but mm-hmm. their dynamic is fascinating, <laughs> and it's going to make a hell of a story. And I don't even know if he thought he wanted to make a movie out of it yet. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he did, but even part of it, he was he was just like, when you tell this story, I want to know about y'all. <laughs> hmm. Financing was only allowed by Warner Brothers on the condition that their number one star, Robert Redford, Mm -hmm. number one in the business, starred as Bob Woodward. Redford has sworn up and down that he never wanted that role. He just wanted to produce it and make a good story. And honestly, I believe that. Robert Redford is the kind of guy who would be like, I don't, I just want to make this. This is a cool story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they were like, we're not doing this unless you like fucking get in there and bank us money
0: i can understand that
1: now the owner of the post catherine graham was apprehensive about the film using the paper's name and telling the story and rightfully so she was a very camera shy wanted to stay out of the limelight we see that a lot in the post with meryl streep's performance of her Mm -hmm. okay she she supports the mission of the paper but she's like it's not my paper Mm -hmm. they do the work i just have the money (laughs) all that's fair but she saw the movie loved it, and gave all the praise to Redford for producing it. In fact, they had written her in as a small role and a small character in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but she begged Redford not to include her, saying that the only way I'll allow this is if you do not have me as a figure. And he agreed. He said, absolutely. Okay, fine. They they had already started casting, and he went, nope. So she gets mentioned by name one time in the film, and that's it. Cool. Graham later admitted that she wished she had not made the request because the film was so good. She was like, Yeah, I should have shown up. <laughs> they should have put me in there for a minute.
0: I I respect that she didn't want to be in it and she like her reasons were sound and fair. But yeah, I I I can appreciate that. She's like, no, it would have been better.
1: Well, it's the history was so important that she's like, we cannot get this wrong because it will damage the paper if they get this wrong. Sure. And if my name is attached to it. That's only going to muddy some of those waters. We need to let the movie speak for itself. And if the movie's bad, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> sure. Because you just don't know. These guys could have made a great movie and nobody see it. And everybody's like, fuck this shit. And then, uh-oh. <laughs> but then when she found out it was so good, she was like, dang it. <laughs> the final project did wind up $3.5 million over budget and 35 days behind schedule. But when I tell you why and how they made this movie, you will understand that they needed every bit of that extra. Okay. <laughs> and as a note, this was the first film President Jimmy Carter watched upon assuming the office of president. Um,
0: interesting.
1: Which to be fair, Jimmy Carter was very famous for having concerts and also viewing films in the White House. He was a big promoter of mm-hmm. like actually bringing some of the culture into his White House Okay, well, he he also had children in the White House too. Kind of, he had some teenagers.
0: Yeah, but that's what I mean is like he had like teenagers and film films and stuff are things that you would do to entertain them.
1: Jimmy Carter, complicated president, pretty good guy.
0: He's a stand-up dude.
1: Yep, complicated president. Let uh, me be very that's clear. Fair,
0: but stand-up dude. He's like ninety-five and he's still like building Habitat for Humanity houses. Good for him.
1: Also. Clear in a way, our only former president who hasn't tried to make his entire life based on him talking about how he was president.
0: Or like, this is why I'm amazing. I was the best president ever. And I'm I'm
1: talking about literally every other president after him. Oh,
0: (laughs) yes, totally. Like the good and the bad.
1: He just went back to be a peanut farm. All right, let's talk about our writing. We start with the book written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. Woodward and Bernstein offered a treatment of the script as well, but part of the problem was they were using a ton of reporters' gags and jokes, mm. which nobody got because it was all inside shit. And then there was a subplot of them trying to hook up with women during the investigation. Yeah, that's not great. <sighs> they're they're dumb dorks like mind. I
0: I get it, but it's not good.
1: All right, now... Let's talk about our actual screenplay writer. Okay. William fucking Goldman.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah. I did not know that at all.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: I love that. Movie.
1: Before this, William Goldman wrote Masquerade, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Papillon, The Great Waldo Pepper, and The Stepford Wives. After this, he wrote Marathon Man, A Bridge Too Far, Magic. The Princess Bride, Misery, Chaplain, Maverick, Fierce Creatures, Absolute Power, The General's Daughter, Hearts in Atlantis, and Dreamcatcher. The man, the myth, the legend. Oh, he's so good and he's so fucking good with this movie. Yeah. We will talk about the history and stuff, but what's really fascinating is that everything's dead on accurate in what's Mm -hmm. happening. Okay. What William Goldman does is that he puts in the flourishes. Oh, e- easy. All of the iconic lines that show up from this movie mm-hmm. are all William Goldman. Love it. They were never spoken by the characters involved, and it's all him.
0: <laughs> I, of course it is. I love him so much.
1: And then you hear his name, right? You love his his writing and his movies, and you go, mm-hmm. oh, shit, now it makes so much sense. That's why there's so much humor here. That's why the interpersonal relationships with the characters... Mm-hmm. And he's perfect for a movie that, again, at its core, is about these two guys. Yes. So, yes, it's a complex story. And, yes, there's a lot of pressure on him to make sure he can weave in the details that need to be done. Mm-hmm. But he's so smart in how he oh, yeah. makes these two relate to each other and puts them in the same spaces together. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's and, and, I mean, it just, they're iconic line after line moment after moment and you know even some of the visual stuff knowing William Goldman he's the one who at least put that on the page to start with
0: sure easy
1: then they would go okay well that's pretty fucking good now we gotta film it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah man (laughs) that's so good
0: I mean I I think that's what it is is because with a film like this it could be really easy for it to be stodgy it's about this happened and then this happened and then this happened and you're right you've said it a couple of times that the the core of this film is about the relationship between these two reporters they have no reason to, to get along or work together they just don't but they caught on to this thing and the language between each other you you get that vibe that like they've been in this industry for a minute or two mm-hmm. and so they have that shorthand writer thing and then it's like it's not it's not good enough. not good enough
1: we don't have it (laughs)
0: yeah we don't don't have it yet let's go get it like it's there's a there's an economy of their language that works really really well without losing that humor that we do love from william goldman that guy just brings the best flavor to what he writes like that makes so much sense like of course it's william goldman
1: (laughs) of course of course in what honestly might be his best screenplay and that's saying something
0: yeah the dude made princess bride
1: But like this is so just clear in a way, incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And and the fact that he's able, the tonal shifts he's able to make Mm -hmm. while feeling seamless. Mm -hmm. The one of the best examples is Bernstein goes to the accountant's office, the bookkeeper, Mm -hmm. to her house, and like it's pulling teeth Mm -hmm. because he knows he's got she's got the goods. Yeah. But he also knows she's terrified. Mm-hmm. And Which so he's he's trying every possible tactic he can make mm-hmm. and trying every little way to be like, okay, fine. You don't have to say anything. I can just say initials mm-hmm. and you can nod and that can be it and just pulling that stuff. And then he's had to do this for so long. He gets to Woodward's place. And he's like, I've had like seven cups of coffee. We got to write this down now because I'm going to forget all of it. Love it. And it's, it's such an abrupt shift, but it's so real. Yes. Like It's just so true to what that would have been. He's like, I've been sitting in this woman's house, trying everything I can, and I've had eight cups of coffee, and I'm about to lose my fucking mind if I don't tell you all of this shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. It, re- it, it really is. Goldman made a very specific decision about the story. Okay. And that is that he only covers the first half of the book. So the book goes all the way through the investigation to Nixon's resignation. Oh. Because they were on the story throughout that whole time. The film only covers the first seven months from the break-in to their faulty reporting on Haldeman. Now, Goldman, in his typical Goldman way, states that Woodward was super helpful, but Bernstein was a pain in the ass, so he wound up throwing away the second half of the book, Mm -hmm. possibly because Bernstein did a lot of the legwork on the second part. Sounds like a William Goldman take. Yeah. But I think, actually, it's far more because he went, this has to be digestible. And if we try to tell this whole story, we are going to get into reciting facts and figures and shit. And so instead, he focuses on... These two young, hungry reporters going all the way, finding all of this, and then realizing we made a mistake. And we'll talk about in our history section what the mistake is they made mm-hmm. because they were right, but they reported it wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I love that the end of the movie is not we caught him. The end of the movie is we're going back to work. And they initially, Woodward's you know, young, hungry, scrappy, but maybe a little too by the book, while Bernstein is pure instinct, which is getting him a little bit in trouble because he's not doing all the legwork work he needs to do. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this movie, they're both perfectly in sync. They're different reporters, they've got different styles, but they know what they have to do to get this story. Mm-hmm. And from now on, they're going to do it methodically, bit by bit. And while Nixon is accepting re-election and everybody's watching, these two are just at their typewriters hammering away. Yeah. So good. It is. (laughs) That's purely Goldman just going, the audience needs an easy end point. Because everybody knows what happens after that. That's when it became a national story. Mm -hmm. So Goldman went, well, fuck it. Let's tell the part of the story that nobody really knows in the early part of this. Mm -hmm. Where it's really about these two figuring out being primetime reporters. And then everybody knows the end point of the story. All these guys get taken down. There's all sorts of crazy shit. And the president resigns. Yep. I think it's just one of the most savvy moves he made was saying, okay, fuck the second half of the story. Just tell the first part.
0: Sure. No, I love that Be- because you're right. It is. We we already know what eventually happens. And this movie is not about what happens. It's about these two reporters. And so, yeah, it's just like they didn't get the, the they quote-unquote easy win so it's like we gotta get back to work yep which again like that's the reporter's job and i love that
1: one part was he apparently had to tone down dialogue from harry rosenfeld who is the jack warden character in this movie they're like direct editor guy Mm -hmm. a few steps down apparently rosenfeld was so funny in real life that goldman thought viewers wouldn't believe that he was so witty if he kept all of his actual jokes in. Mm -hmm. now we have Some secret writers.
0: Secret writers.
1: Yeah. Because getting a minor plot point in, but also almost ruining this film, Mm -hmm. were Carl Bernstein God, and his then girlfriend, Nora Ephron. Oh, interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. See, Goldman's script was accepted by the studio and by Redford. And they were like, cool, we've got a good start. Now we just need Woodward and Bernstein to vet it. Sure. Because they were going to go through that process. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, Goldman got called to an impromptu meeting. Woodward, Bernstein, Redford, and Efron presented Goldman with an entirely new screenplay. Oh, God. Goldman, incredibly insulted and rightfully so, (laughs) refused to read the screenplay and walked out.
0: I mean, that was the right move, man.
1: Because- Efron hadn't done... Efron was a reporter, and she'd done tons of reporting work. She hadn't written a screenplay yet. Oh, okay. At all. (laughs) And Bernstein never wrote anything close to that. And by the way, I'll be very clear. Bob Woodward has remained a solid reporter. He's a little too by the book now, to where sometimes you're like, hey, dude, you're kind of hiding some important shit. Bernstein's become a total fucking shithead. (laughs) Yeah. And always kind of has been, but... He was really fucking important for this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can get on board with that.
1: When Woodward finally saw what was happening, he was apparently furious Mm -hmm. because Bernstein wrote Woodward as the novice reporter worshipping Bernstein's superior talent. Yeah. (laughs) Woodward then called Goldman later to apologize and said, quote, I don't know what the six worst things I've ever done in my life are, but letting that happen, letting them write that is one of them. Unquote. Mm. so that script did not make it through Goldman's script did get vetted I believe Redford and our director also did some rewrites after because they weren't fully satisfied with the final product mm-hmm. and they also were not okay with the script like after thinking about it Redford was like yeah this fucking sucks <laughs>
0: Okay.
2: there
1: was one scene from that secret screenplay that did get included in the final film And that is the scene where Bernstein outsmarts a secretary to see the Miami DA. Mm, Okay. That was complete fiction. That never happened. But it's a fun bit. It's a fun bit to think about. We'll we'll forgive him. I'm sure he just got in the Miami DA's office just like any other way. But Mm -hmm. it it adds a little spice. It adds a little flavor. I'm not that mad about it. Just Mm -hmm. Jesus, guys. (laughs) Just let William Goldman write your movie. Yeah,
0: pretty much.
1: All right, let's talk about the history. And again, I we're not going to get that much into Watergate specifically. What's interesting are the choices that Goldman made that do necessarily deviate from history and the specific moments that he came up with on his own. To put it bluntly, this is a journalistic venture as much as it was a film. The script was actually verified and confirmed independently, both by Woodward and Bernstein and other sources. It was actually reported and fact-checked. Mm-hmm. So other than that secret bullshit screenplay, Goldman's script was like put through an actual reporting ringer, which you should do if you're doing a movie about reporting. Mm -hmm. Your story should be vetted like it's a news story. Yeah. Just do it because it makes it that much better. Goldman understood the moment and the balancing act of making a relatively mundane process of reporting interesting to viewers. He, He realized he's like, I have to make an entertaining movie. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It can't just be this boring thing of going back and forth, fact-checking, doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And and some of that comes in the directing, but Goldman also knew, he's like, there's got to be a balance here. But accuracy was the most important to him. Quote, I was terrified because you knew that everybody who was going to talk about this film had, at one time or another, been in a newsroom. Every power on television... They all began in newsrooms, and we knew if we had Hollywooded it up, we would be in terrible trouble, unquote. Yeah. So again, the book is cut in half. Another big reason for that is to allow them to include the little details to make the accuracy of the movie better, Mm -hmm. and thus be able to cut the story so it's a digestible length. If they wanted to do the whole story and vet it, it then becomes like a four or five hour movie.
0: Yeah, then it becomes a miniseries.
1: So instead, he could say, well, if I cut it in half, I can now go way deeper on these little bits and pieces. And that was the right choice. Yeah. And the climax, thus, is the botched handling of background info that to incriminate Haldeman. And the mix up here, it's, it's kind of interesting. They had it right. Haldeman was the guy leading all the efforts. But what happens is, and they talk about it in the movie, is that they attribute a quote to this one guy saying that he testified in front of the grand jury that Haldeman was involved with the slush fund. Mm-hmm. He never said that to the grand jury. Mm-hmm. It is a small detail, but that small detail in the reporting allowed Haldeman and all of Nixon's cronies to unilaterally get on TV and say, it's complete fabrication. Yeah. And they were kind of right. Yeah. Now, it's not a complete fabrication, but even Deep Throat, I, the, the fucking quote where Deep Throat is like, You even make people care about Haldeman. I didn't think that was possible. Mm -hmm. You made people feel bad for that asshole. But that's when, you know, Woodward is like, you have to give me stuff on the record. We can't do this shit anymore. Yeah. Like, I know you're, I know you feel unsafe. I know you can't go too deep. And I'm not going to put you in danger, but you've got to give me better than what you're giving me. And that's when Deep Throat starts to actually point him in the right direction. <laughs> Goldman does do a few moments of conflation of times and stuff. There's a minor anecdote about Woodward seeing Bernstein taking pages from the city desk and rewriting them. That wound up a ba- as the basis for the time they first meet. Mm-hmm. Um, when he gives him the amazing line, I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you
3: did it here, I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it, Some of me the conclusions. conclusion. May I'm I have, have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight, either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What does that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yeah. yours... Yeah, and I read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. The first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's gonna understand it. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He was a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Right. Yours is better. Do it, do it right. You're my notes. If you're going to hype it, hype it with the facts. I don't mind what you did. I mind the way you did
1: it. Ugh. Rosenfeld's work to persuade Simons to keep them on the story, despite their inexperience, led to Goldman giving us the line, Howard, they're hungry. You remember when you were hungry?
2: <laughs> Never
1: quoted by Rosenfeld. That's a William Goldman special. Love it. The foreign editor, Scott, was positioned as the skeptic, but that, that role was completely fabricated for the film Mm -hmm. they needed somebody to voice some dissent to the story okay but I I, it was much more of a give and take and I think in editors meetings of like you know Bradley at first going y'all don't have anything to okay now you have something (laughs) Mm -hmm. Bradley's two monologues in the film are a conflation of lots of different lines that are dropped throughout the book so he's got little bits and bobs of dialogue where he shows up in the book and they kind of merged that into his monologues for the
3: film. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: You know, once when I was reporting, Lyndon Johnson's top guy gave me the word. They were looking for a successor for J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote it and the day it appeared, Johnson held a press conference and appointed Hoover head of the FBI for life. When he was done, turned to his top guy and the president said, call Ben Bradley and tell him fuck you. (laughs) Hell, everybody said you did it, Ben. You screwed up. You stuck us with Hoover forever. I screwed up, and I went wrong.
1: <laughs> and finally, no one in history said the words, follow the money, including Deep Throat. <laughs> <laughs> that is a William Goldman classic. Pieces, we can't seem to figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look
3: like. John Mitchell resigns as the head of Creep. And says that he wants to spend more time with his family. It sounds like bullshit. We don't exactly believe that. No, but it's touching. Forget the myths that the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunts come in from the cold. Supposedly he's got a lawyer with twenty five thousand dollars in a brown paper bag. Follow the money,
0: man, that that gets repeated all the fucking time. yes, it does, but and in everyday vernacular, follow the money. follow the money is all it is just it's genius because it's so descriptive of what's happening. and it's it's the exact thing that you have to do It's like if you if you can track the money, you can track what's happening.
1: It just is yep. and again, it, all of these changes have nothing to do with the history. Every detail is still incredibly accurate. It mm-hmm. is all for dramatic tension or giving ta- context for the two characters. Mm-hmm. Nothing in here does anything to distort the actual facts of the story. It's all just in service of making it a better movie. Yeah. And that's all it needs to do. The only criticism that people have raised that I think has, that I think has panned out and, and maybe a little bit true Is that it did elevate Woodward and Bernstein to these sort of like godlike figures in media. Mm -hmm. Bernstein has obviously been the biggest turd about that by like frequently going on and saying crackpot stuff and writing stories. It's just like, there's no basis to any of this, dude. Like, shut up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Woodward has, you know, strayed into his conservative values and his conservative reporting style. And that's led to frustration from a lot of people. I don't think the movie should be viewed that way. I think it did by a lot of people because, like, look at these fucking heroes. And it's like, no, they're just ordinary people who are like, this is messed up. Mm-hmm. And it's a fucking story that's going to sell papers, too. Yep. And I think it's much better if you just view them as it's just an interesting story about two actual people who are not perfect.
0: Yeah. And they're just doing their jobs. Like, their actual you, job.
1: <laughs> and if you view it that way and you understand it that way, it's a much better story. hmm. Because it's not like they're bastions of democracy, which I think they've rightly or wrongly been held up as. Mm -hmm. It's just like they're just guys reporting a news story. And that news story happened to be one of the biggest things that's ever happened in US history. Yep. The film and the actual story introduced the term rat fucking. Donald Segretti and USC students used political sabotage and tricks to win election campaigns on campus at USC. Mm -hmm. The Nixon campaign saw what they were doing and were like, why don't you come do that for us? <laughs> that's how it fucking worked, man. Yeah. Woodward and Bernstein did go to Ben Bradley's house to relay Deep Throat's message that everyone was in danger on May 16th, 1973. Now, this would be after Nixon started his second term. So it's a little, when they did that moment, that's after technically what we see in the movie as the end point. Mm-hmm. Um, It's also after James McCord broke his silence on the cover-up, which is what reinvigorated the Post's reporting on the story. Okay. And it was the day before the Watergate hearings began. Okay. And Bradley's actual response to their memo when they go to him was, quote, what the hell do we do now? Unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's even better than what they do in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Ben Bradley. All right. We're pro-writing. Pro-writing. And we're happy with the history. Let's talk about our director. He has already been a two-time guest on this show, and his name is Alan J. Pacula. Okay. The movies he's directed for this show, Sophie's Choice and The Pelican Brief. Hey. And this is so much better done than those two. Yes. Well, Okay. Those films had really big script problems. Yes, they did.
0: So that didn't help. This clearly did not have a script problem, so his job
1: was much easier. There are so many great shots in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like I remember watching this and being highly entertained about it. Mm -hmm. But as we've done this show, I've been more attuned to seeing when I see, like, oh, what a cool moment, what a cool shot, and the Mm -hmm. framing and stuff. Man... The six-minute non-cutaway of Redford on the phone. Yeah. That last moment of the framing of Nixon in the foreground and them in the back. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, shit, that's so good. Nobody would do that now.
0: Well, no, they they do that a lot now. One of the things that I kept noticing when we were watching scenes like that was it reminded me a lot
1: of Mad Men. Yeah. Mad Men pulls a lot from this movie.
0: It definitely does. and And that's not a bad thing. No. But it just gives you that sense of like, this is this is nitty gritty work. I loved the shots of the lot, like the real footage of the news and whatnot with, you know, other people just doing stuff in the background. I loved that stuff.
1: Well, and especially like big news happens. McGovern has announced he's replacing his running mate. Mm -hmm. And everybody, everybody in that room is like, well, this is the news. This is what we all have to write about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's Woodward in a corner hacking away. <laughs> yep, because the story's bigger than anybody realizes. <laughs> yeah, but at that point, it's not a story. And again, it you know all the newsroom shots, everything they do. And it, one of the things I remember loving about this movie before, I didn't feel it as much the second time around. But this is one of the most interesting thrillers ever because there is a sense of danger around every corner. And yet, at no point do these guys face any actual physical threat of violence. Mm-hmm. Ever. There is no moment; it is all in their heads. Yeah, and you feel it. That's amazing to me that you can make a thriller where there's no direct threat ever, mm-hmm. and there never really was. Like they they were, you know, hinting at it here and there because Nixon was a drunken psycho. Essentially, and would say whatever they wanted, but they knew better than they knew that if they actually like took out the two most prominent reporters in America, mm-hmm. that that would blow back on them way harder. Oh, sure. Like that was like they can't go after those guys. They've got to figure out a, a better way to do it. So they were never under real threat. But the movie is so incredible at making you feel that. Oh yeah. E- even though there's none, and it's really funny. Like. It was funny talking about the Pelican Brief, knowing he directed this movie and being Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, you're so much better than this, Alan J. Pacula. (laughs) But again, I think it comes down to he had a good script. Mm -hmm. He had a really compelling story. And I do think everybody recognized we have to be on our game. Yeah. Because if we don't and we do this wrong, it's going to be bad for everybody. So I just, he... Again, he makes so many great choices in framing, in setting up shots that are interesting, that are compelling, that ratchet up the tension in such great ways mm-hmm. without sacrificing any of that great writing. And in a movie like this, that's what you need. You don't necessarily need somebody flashy, but you do need somebody who's going to keep the tone. Yeah. And he's really good with it in this movie.
0: He He is. I mean, he just... I, I we, we've talked about the shots, but he just gets it so well. And I just, I mean, it's one of those things that like, you, we of course, we notice the shots, but you also just don't notice the directing. And this is a movie that definitely needs that.
1: Yeah. Well, Pacula conducted hours of interviews with newspaper editors, journalists, and reporters. He took note of comments to get the vision right. So he mm-hmm. wanted as much detail as he could get in the shot. Now, despite all of the careful writing, there's actually a ton of improv used in the film as well. He really encouraged Redford and Hoffman specifically to work with that to see what they could get out of it. Mm -hmm. It was also one of his attempts to have a slight bit of verite feeling. Not as much as something that we would see with like Battle of Algiers, but it gave it a little bit of grit Mm -hmm. and a little bit of realism if they threw in some improv with some of these moments, sure. And one such moment, which is a flubbed line that was kept in character and really works, is when Redford is on the phone cold calling and he gets a hold of somebody who speaks Spanish and he yells, "Does anyone here know English?" Shakes his head. I mean, does anyone here know Spanish?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He just fucked up the line. Yeah. But he stayed in character. Yeah. And it works.
0: <laughs> yeah, because that's just what you do as a human it just happens
1: now apparently pacula was also a giant pain in the ass okay at least to goldman <laughs> he kept asking for constant rewrites from william goldman with the same exclaim quote don't deny me any riches unquote what? i don't know goldman said that if he had his career all over again he would never go near this film <laughs> like it's one of his best works but it was also apparently just one of the biggest pains in the ass to try to deal
0: with. Sure. I mean, there's just so much at stake with this. And like when you're writing something that's fiction, like do whatever the fuck you want. And here it's like, I, I can't do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> Number one,
1: everybody's under immense amounts of pressure. Sure. Hakula's constantly wanting new rewrites and he's improving which has got to be frustrating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I also get where Pacula is coming from of like, there's so much good shit here. I need even more because mm-hmm. let's get as much of it on camera as we can get. I don't blame Pacula for thinking that at all. He's like, look at all this good material. Let's do it. And then we can cut it later. And then that that Bernstein and Efron shit had to just be the the nail in the coffin of like, Man, Mm -hmm. I'm proud of this movie, but fuck it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like this. No, we're done. We're done. This is not worth the hassle. (laughs) Neat. Per Redford, they wanted to film in the actual Washington Post newsroom, but all of the reporters around were too aware of the camera. No. And some of them actually tried to act and mug for the camera, and that's not going to work for this movie. Mm Mm-mm. Uh, he said that some reporters tried to duck into restrooms to apply makeup. <laughs> and so instead, they used a Burbank studio to recreate the Washington Post facility for about $450,000. Mm-hmm. The Post, to help them out with this, shipped crates of unused items, including unopened mail, government directories, Washington telephone directories, wire service copy calendars, and stickers from Ben Bradley's secretary's desk. Wow. Then the production took it one step higher, not only in the little things by reproducing out-of-date phone books, because they would keep old phone books too, Mm -hmm. but production designer George Jenkins was originally a Broadway scenic designer. Hmm. So... He used that idea to his advantage to recreate the space in the studio. It wasn't as big as the newsroom. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that kind of space. So he built the rear of the set in false perspective to increase the depth for camera. As the set receded, the prop makers cut prop desks down to size to fit and match the reduced scale for the lines of desks in in the distance. Cool. So while filming in the front, and then when filming, the extras in the background were selected for height so that the perspective would stay the same. <laughs> they cast shorter actors That's amazing. to keep the perspective clear, and they got the full scale of the newsroom without needing the size of the set. That's amazing. I love it so much. That's the fucking detail they went in for this movie. I love it. I love it so much. Ugh uh redford and hoffman did hang out in the actual post newsroom for several weeks observing reporters and sitting in on staff meetings ben bradley was not excited about the idea of this movie but eventually they persuaded him that look the only way you're gonna have any say in this movie is if you actually come in and give your two cents fair so the old crotchety man decided fuck it i better do it
0: Well, I mean, I think that's fair. It's just like, look, if you want to help us do it right, you got to be here. You got to do
1: it. And he's like, I don't want anybody making a movie about us.
0: Yeah, but you kind of
1: (laughs) do. Damn it. All right. Here's the thing. Out of everybody, like Woodward and Bernstein, young guys, probably enjoying the attention. Ben Bradley is not a dude who gave a shit. (laughs) No. He was there to run a fucking newspaper. He didn't (laughs) care if Hollywood wanted to make a movie about him.
0: It's like, I got work to do. Leave me
1: alone. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, we have one who could have been better for this. Ooh. Gentleman by the name of John Schlesinger. He directed Midnight Cowboy and Marathon Man. He is a British director, and he very aptly said that he felt an American should tell this story. Yeah. And while John Schlesinger is an incredibly great director, he's very good. Number one, this is not exactly his style of movie, mm-hmm. though Marathon Man is a thriller. Okay. But number two, he's absolutely right. You need an American director for this movie. Yeah. You just do. All right. Now let's talk about our cast.
0: Ah, uh, yes.
1: And we get to first talk about the man who brought this all together in the first place. hmm So dreamy, a regular who could have been better guest for both the sting and the natural, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward. What do we think of Robert Redford in this movie?
0: He's so dreamy. He's great. He's very like, he doesn't try to be charming. He's just like, head down, get the work done. Like that's who he is in this film. And that's great. That's exactly what he needs
1: to be. It is one of his best acting roles because he really works hard to tone that charm down.
0: He's not twinkly. He doesn't give that like that smirk that he's got at all. And yet you can tell that he's just like i'm I'm here to do my job like I'm here to be a reporter
1: yeah when, and when he smirks, it's because he's got the reporter face
0: yeah it's it's I'm on to I've, I've solved the puzzle yeah exactly it, it's it's not you know I'm so dreamy. it's no I've figured it out
1: yeah Redford Redford admitted he had to do a ton of work to bridge the gap between his you know California charming dude vibe. And Woodward, he said, quote "On the surface, Bob appeared to be just perfect. He just knew his lawn was cut, and there was really careful, slower speech, well thought out, very humble, very polite." Unquote.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was Mr. Clean Republican dude, like just pure affable, nice mm-hmm. enough guy, yeah. unassuming, gets his work done. But he realized. That what Woodward really was doing was burying himself in an obsessive work ethic and deep-seated conservatism, and deep, deep underneath all of that was a killer instinct. The moment his story came, he was ready to take the person down mm. and that's what that's those moments that we see. Redford's like, "I'm burying it, I'm burying it, and then when he finds it, that's when he pulls his Robert Redfordness out, yeah. He's like, fuck it, yes, I found it. We got the story, and it's so it it's subtle, it's really subtle because Robert Redford as a presence, there's not a whole lot he can do acting wise to hide his presence. No, like he's a great actor, but it's hard. (laughs) But this is one of his best jobs of doing that because he knows he's got to keep it way reined in until it's time to pull it out. So he's magnificent.
0: He's
2: and
1: he's dreamy. It helps.
0: It doesn't hurt.
1: Weirdly, like Bob Woodward's a little ganglier and a little more narrow featured, but they've got a similar look if you ever look at them.
0: I don't have a problem with making history people more attractive.
1: On well, movies. yes. I mean, Robert Redford's probably like the ideal, but they're not too dissimilar looking guys.
0: Yeah, well, that's fair.
1: Bob Woodward's a Midwest guy, and Robert Redford's a California surfer dude. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now let's talk about another regular guest of the show, mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein.
0: we have talked about him so many times.
1: Well, he's almost always a who could have been better. So is Robert Redford for that matter. True. But also Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man and Tootsie. What do we think of Dustin Hoffman in this movie? He's a great foil to Redford. Like, he really is. So let me give you the who could have been better here. Okay. Because Redford had a different person in mind first.
0: Let, let me think. I, I bet I can guess. Who? Dreyfus. No. Oh, okay.
1: Think Dustin Hoffman. Think similar vibe. Al Pacino. There you go.
0: <laughs> it's like his nemesis.
1: <laughs> Al Pacino. Which I, I don't know that would have been right. But on the other hand, Pacino would have given another dynamic performance in this role. And it would have been fascinating to watch the two.
0: I would probably really like it, just because I think this would be a
1: very different role for Pacino. Bernstein's fucking full of himself, Mm -hmm. but he's also neurotic. So is Justin Hoffman. And Bernstein, as much as full of himself as he is, he does understand what is needed to do a good story. Mm -hmm. And working with Woodward made him a better reporter. As much as he might want to deny it, it did, because his... The thing about Bernstein was his instincts were amazing. Mm-hmm. That's the reason he did so much great stuff because yeah, his gut check was better than anybody else's. He could tell instantly if somebody had the goods, mm-hmm. but he had to figure out how he could get the goods out of them. And that's the thing he had, he, he had to work and figure out because initially he's just like, you can tell in his mind, he's already figured out the puzzle out, but that's, you can't just figure it out and say it. You have to report it. Mm-hmm. And Hoffman is so good at knowing and seeing and, and putting all those puzzle pieces together and then ha- getting checked on that and realizing, shit, I got to do a lot more work here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's just as good as Redford in his own way. He, he's doing the same thing as Redford in that he's taking what's so good about him And just as a presence on camera, and then layering some subtlety into it. Instead of going as deep as he does on some of his other roles, Mm -hmm. this is a much more natural Dustin Hoffman vibe, which is what makes it, I think, so much more interesting than some of the other things he's done. Then playing Harry Rosenfeld as their advising editor, dude, we have Jack Warden, also a two time guest on this show. Mm Okay. For both Shampoo and The Verdict. I mean, He's great. He's always great.
0: I like how crotchety he is.
1: A crotchety, but also supportive.
0: Yeah, like he's got a reason to be like he's suspicious and like, all right, let's make sure this is solid.
1: He's not as crotchety as Bradley, right? No, because Bradley's whole job is it better be rock solid or I'm tearing you a new one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and he may not yell to tear you a new one. He might just redline the entire fucking story and be like. You got one sentence you can print. Try again. Yeah. <laughs> and just shove it back in your face to be like, you don't have anything. But Rosenfeld is just the old timer who sees these two kids who are like, they're onto something. Come on. Let's figure this out. <laughs> so uh, he's, he's just phenomenal like he always is. <laughs> All right. Then playing Deep Throat, we have Hal Holbrook. He might be one of our greatest character actors right mm-hmm. up next to Harry Dean Stanton. He began playing Mark Twain on stage in 1954 and portrayed the role over 2,000 times in his life. Hmm. Um, so if you've ever seen like reenactments of Mark Twain doing speeches, it was probably Hal Holbrook. Before this, he was in The Group, Wild in the Streets, The People Next Door, The Great White Hope, and Magnum Force. After this, he played Lincoln on television. He was in Capricorn 1 The Fog Creep show. He played Lincoln again in North and South on TV. Hmm. Was in Wall Street Fletch Lives The Firm Hercules from 1997 Waking the Dead Men of Honor The Majestic Into the Wild That Evening Sun. He was Preston Blair in Lincoln, which we talked about, and he was on Sons of Anarchy. What do we think of Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat in this movie? He's great. So good. I mean, the filming of it is iconic too, and that's a big part of it. But his softness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: his whisperiness, it's so tense. It's so like Hitchcock thriller vibes. Mm-hmm. And again, like there's no fucking X-Files without this movie. He's he's the X-Files mm-hmm. inspiration. By far. So I have to say that like <laughs>
0: So, my only real like impression of Deep Throat from here is the Deep Throat parody in trading places. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I'm like, he doesn't have like a deep voice. It's like, it's, it was just like, I was expecting it to be like gravelier or something like that effect. Yeah. It's, which is fine, but it was just like, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I do appreciate that as part of the script, they talk about why they named him Deep Throat. Mm-hmm. And it was, the editor was like, after the dirty movie, come on. <laughs> he won't t- he won't say who it is because Woodward didn't name him that. Woodward was like Mr. Midwest's Protestant wasp dude. He would never do that. He probably never saw the movie. <laughs> it was just one of the guys being like, yeah, it's his, it's his informant. It's his Deep Throat hmm Because, by the way, this was all happening when Deep Throat came out, so that's part of why he got the nickname. Mm-hmm. I do think some of that, because your expectation is like, it's some shadowy figure with a deep voice, and I wonder if the, the decision on that was based on Woodward's recollection of, no, this is how he talked, this is how he was. Yeah. And I will say, Woodward never revealed who Deep Throat was. Mark Felt did not come out and say he was deep throat until 2005, Mm. which was a huge news story. It was a big fucking deal. And he was a deputy director of the CIA, I believe. Okay. So he, again, he was directly involved. He had deep knowledge of all of the stuff. So he was perfectly poised to be an informant. But I have to imagine like those choices were based on Woodward's specific recollections. And saying like, I'm not going to tell you everything about this dude, but I will tell you his mannerisms and what he was like and how he talked. Sure. And I appreciate too, like there is a level of him being a bit soft spoken, being a little bit more of a nervous, ticky kind of slightly softer man almost gives it more credence of this is some dude who is in a position of authority to know this. Mm -hmm. but is not in a position of authority enough to be able to do anything about it. Yeah. That kind of (laughs) helps. And again, just the way they film him with just his eyes and how Holbrook's such a great actor that he can pull something like that off where you never see his face. Yeah, he's very good. Then we have Jason Robards playing Ben Bradley. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. We talked about him for Magnolia. And he's an incredible actor. He's been in so many things. I'm not going to go through all this stuff because we're we're already going long. But Jason Robards is fucking incredible. And oh, man, he's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. He was Redford's first choice. He just nails it. He just nails it perfectly. His delivery is so effortless. Mm-hmm. And look, Jason Robards plays like 80 flavors of crotchety. He always has. <laughs> it's <Fair. laughs> just what he's done in his career. But there's something about the way he does it in this that just fits perfectly to who he needs to be. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly silent. Yep. He's watching everything going on. And when he comments, he says exactly what needs to be said with as many F words as he needs to say to get the point across. But he also commands so much authority in that room, not because he's a tyrant, but because he knows more shit than any of these people combined. Mm Mm-hmm. And they respect him. And Woodward and Bernstein, who were young, who were so invested in this, who were like, we know we have this. They also absolutely 100% agree that if Bradley kills the story, he's probably right. Yep. Because this man has seen more shit than we will see in our entire lifetime. <laughs> and Robards just brings that, that level of just effortlessness to it and commanding the room without needing to be like loud and boisterous about it.
0: Yeah, he's definitely dad in the room, essentially. And he's just like, I okay, I gotta
3: figure out how we're gonna do this. <laughs> you know the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. And get your asses back in gear, we're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad, yeah,
1: don't fuck it up. <laughs> So
0: William Golden Stinger, for sure. Oh God!
1: Pacula immediately agreed with Redford on this choice. Bradley loved the performance. He really he he gave Robarts his props, though he admitted that uh, if he was picking, he probably would have picked Fred Astaire to play him. <laughs> okay. Which weirdly, Fred Astaire's whole like kind of background vibe, I don't
2: hate. Yeah.
1: Probably not in 1976, but I I wouldn't have been mad. mm Hmm. Robards thought it was incredibly important to always be in the newsroom so that his presence was always felt even if he wasn't directly on screen. So even when he was not in a shot, Robards would come to set and stay in Bradley's office on the set. Mm -hmm. He'd just sit, read a book, do whatever, and he would always be in the background if they wound up panning across his office. So even even if you're not even paying attention, you're just like, but he's always there. He always knows. <laughs> and that's yep. so important.
0: Yeah, no, it's really, it's great. I mean, it's just, it's like weird set dressing, but it's just like when you're going to do those big shots of the office, you need to see some of those people. Like his presence should be felt because he is so important to the story Yeah, because he had to both very much question these two reporters but he also had to support them. And that was, you know, questioning them was part of supporting them to make sure that this was airtight. So we needed to feel that presence in the office, even if it like it didn't need to be like overwhelming or overbearing in any way. But we needed to be like, oh, yeah, there's the guy.
1: Well, and all it does is like it it consciously or subconsciously primes you for when those big moments come and everybody just goes, OK, Ben said it. Let's go. Mm-hmm. You don't question it either because he's always there. <laughs> Yeah. Finally, we are going to mention here as the main actress, though she's got a very small role, Jane Alexander as the bookkeeper. Okay. Now, we talked about her as an Arpon in Glory, and she was Dustin Hoffman's best friend in Kramer vs. Kramer. Oh, yeah. So we have mentioned her. She's a big character actress. She worked directly with Judy Hoback, the actual bookkeeper for Creep, the committee to reelect the president. Yes, it was literally called Creep. Because these fuckers were nothing if not bluntly unsubtle. Yeah. God, I hate them. (laughs) Who did actually provide Woodward and Bernstein information about the slush fund payouts. Mm -hmm. She's fantastic. I mean, it's a short role, but she is so just like, I'm not telling you anything. I'm not, okay, I'll tell you this one thing and then I'm not giving anything else up. And slowly but surely just being like, I can't fucking keep this shit in anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and she's not the only one, but she is the prime representative of, like, people who are like, fuck it, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. These fuckers is like, look, I believed in the Nixon administration. We see that, too, from from their main accountant guy who was testifying. I was like, look, I'm a true believer. I believed in the Nixon administration. I thought what they were doing was righteous and good. And then I found out about this shit, and I couldn't keep it in anymore. Mm-hmm. Because if you have true believers and then you pull shit like this, they will testify against you. And, and she was one of them. The filmmakers actually rented Hoback's former home in Georgetown near D.C. and shot the scenes with Alexander and Hoffman in the living room where those conversations occurred. Mm-hmm. Damn! Yeah. <laughs> Again, all of, that, all of that stuff, you probably would never notice. But with a movie like this, it just gives it that extra bit of tension. Because mm-hmm. if the actors know that, it just weighs that much more in the performance, mm. which to the audience gives you an air of authenticity. Yeah. That's how it comes through. All right. Let's talk about some Arpons.
0: Random people of note.
1: We have Meredith Baxter as Debbie Sloan, the wife of the accountant dude. She was in Family Ties. Mm -hmm. We have Stephen Collins playing Hugh Sloan as the actual accountant dude. He is very young here. He is the dad from Seventh Heaven, and he is a total garbage person. Correct. We have Ned Beatty playing Dardis, the Miami DA. So he's in this movie, right? Mm -hmm. He also had the cameo, the five-minute incredible monologue in Network.
0: Oh, Yeah. And you have
2: meddled with the primal forces of nature,
1: and you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mister Beale? You are dealing with forces beyond your control. That's so cool. He gives. That's the best moment in the whole fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, same year, same goddamn year. Wow. Consummate character actor. Mm-hmm. Frank Wills playing himself, he was the actual security guard that discovered the five men that broke into the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel. Oh, okay. And he is in this film. A few days after the break-in, he was fired without any explanation, and he was out of work for three years before he got this offer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That well, doesn't surprise me. It's they targeted
1: him, and he's a black man, so it was easy for them to target him. Mm. He would never have a full time job again, and he died at the age of fifty two in two thousand. Mm. Yeah, that's rough.
0: Makes me mad.
1: But I I sincerely appreciate them for being like, give this guy a job, let yeah. him have this moment, and they put him in the movie because it's that important. Yeah, it is. As arresting officer number one. A young F. Murray Abraham.
0: (laughs) So crazy.
1: The fact that you recognized him and I was like, who are you talking? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is right after his other Arpon moment as a mechanic in the Sunshine Boys. (laughs) (laughs) So we're like, is that F. Murray Abraham?
0: He's just having the most fun. Like, he has,
1: I just look at his career and I'm just like, wow. Yeah, I know, and like again, this is well before he was any type of leading actor. Amadeus was like the big break, sure. which like put him on the map. But like, it's just so funny to be like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> David Arkin playing Eugene Baczynski. He was Norman, the driver in Nashville. Talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Dominic Chianese playing Eugenio R. Martinez. He is Junior Soprano and Johnny Ola from The Godfather Part Two. Lindsay Krause as Kay Eddy, she had a minor role in Slapshot, and she was the nurse in The Verdict. Oh, okay. Uh, she is also the young reporter who they, who Woodward very much tries to be like, nope, we're not going to make her go back with this guy that she was with, and then she does it anyway. Mm-hmm. Valerie Curtin playing Miss Milland, who answers the door and is too terrified to talk to them, she was a character actress who was in the TV sitcom version of 9to5 and was also married to Barry Levinson for some time, co-wrote Toys with him, and was a frequent contributor to his work. She is also the cousin of SNL legend Jane Curtin. Mm, okay. Richard Hurd, playing James W. McCord Jr., he was the stone-faced actor who played Roman Armitage, the oldest patriarch of the creepy family in Get Out. Oh, okay. Holly Holiday playing Dartist secretary for the De- Miami DA's office. This is Mrs. Deagle from Gremlins. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, totally different role. She's just a sweet talking southern woman who's just, well, you just wait right here and then you'll wait all day and then I'm going home. Bye. <laughs> James Karen playing Hugh Sloan's lawyer. He was the developer in Poltergeist who sold plots of land on a graveyard. <laughs> Martin Balsam playing Howard Simons, the main editor under Bradley, who Warden has to convince to be like, let these two young guys have this. Don't give it to your actual political reporters. Mm-hmm. He's a huge deal actor. He's been, he was in Psycho, Breakfast at Tiffany's, 12 Angry Men. He's done tons and tons of stuff. So he's a big deal. Yeah. George Weiner playing attorney number two in the office. This is Colonel Sanders from Spaceballs. Yeah. Sidney <laughs> Gainis playing the L.A. Stringer. He is the executive producer and former Academy president who helped bring us The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Top Gun, Fatal Attraction, Ghost, and bought the rights to Forrest Gump. Wow. He's a big fucking deal. Fucking Christopher Murray, playing a photo aide, he was Nick Newport Sr. on Parks and Recreation. Okay. Richard Venture, playing the assistant Metro editor, he was the U.S. ambassador in Missing. And as the voice of John Mitchell, John Randolph, who was Clark Sr. in Christmas Vacation and Skylar Fox in You've Got Mail. Okay. Okay. And then I have all the people appearing as themselves, which, let's be honest, that's for history. You, you don't need to know all of that, though. Uh, there is a great, if you ever read the book, they have a full chart of how Creep was organized and who all the people were under each thing. Mm-hmm. So like, if you ever, get, as you're getting into it, if you're like, what did this motherfucker look like? And you're like, ew, it's all a bunch of gross white dudes. That's pretty fun, though. All right. Let's talk about awards. what? Oh, and let me say, this kind of concludes an, our own mini Oscar series that we've done within a series. Pretty much. Because this is the same year as Network, Rocky, Taxi Driver, and A Star is Born.
0: All films that we watched in different series. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, really good series in their own right. They just happened to cover this Oscars year at the same time.
1: I know. I know. Except a Star is Born. A Star is Born is total and fucking garbage.
0: Yeah, but the like the idea is good.
1: Oh, well, I, the 50s one is pretty good. The 50s one is great. The 1976 version?
0: No, Barbra Streisand's version is the absolute worst. The
1: soft as an, an easy, easy chair. chair. Yeah. I'll like, never get over it. Anyway, network still good but dated. Rocky, Banger, Taxi Driver, incredible. In this fucking movie. Also, What a goddamn year. Yeah. All right. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won Best Art Set Decoration. Okay. I mean, if you're going to do forced perspective on a fucking newsroom. Yeah. And it looks like it's real. Goddamn. Give Mm -hmm. it. It won Best Sound.
0: Okay.
1: I love it. All the typewriter noise, Mm -hmm. all the random shit going on in the background. Yeah, uh, it's good. Best editing, it lost to Rocky. Can't be too mad. Rock, Rocky's pretty well edited. That fight sequence is incredible in Rocky. Yeah. All, of, all the boxing scenes are so good. It won Best Adapted Screenplay. Okay. William Goldman, good on you, bud. This was his Oscar. Yeah. Because it's that fucking good. Yeah. Right, we, sh- we should not just skip past that. Holy shit, the script. All right. Best Supporting Actress. Jane Alexander gets nominated
0: hmm, okay.
1: as the bookkeeper for her five minutes and nine seconds in the movie.
0: Hey, this is where I, I know I've said this before, but we should really start having an actor in a featured role Oscar.
1: Right, and if you will recall, who won this role? It was Beatrice Straight for, for her network. one scene in Network.
0: Yeah, which was like what two minutes longer than this woman? Barely.
2: I know, and
1: still. Just as incredibly good, even yeah. better. Jason Robards won Best Supporting Actor. Mm. He's so good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now Hoffman and Redford don't get nominated, hmm. okay. which may not be the worst move because they probably went. If we nominate, if we nominate one, we have to nominate the other, and then we split the vote. Yeah, it's not worth it. They're two. They're they're only as good together. So let's just. Nom- yeah, <laughs> and Redford's producing, so this does get nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So Redford's already getting a potential win anyway.
0: Yeah, he's getting a
1: statue. Jason Robards went back to back for this and the film Julia in 1977. Mm-hmm, okay. So he, goes, he gets two Oscars back to back. It was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Avildsen for Rocky. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was nominated for Best Picture, but it lost, lost to, to Rocky. Rocky Man, me. I I'm not mad about that. Many people have said that because Rocky was an actual feel good movie. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, we had network, we had Taxi Driver and we had this. Yeah. All in their time incredible films.
0: Oh, fabulous movies. The thing is of all those films, Rocky's the one that gives you hope. Yep. It it is a feel good film, and like I, I don't know, like, I'd say that you feel great about it. But it's just like it's a, it's an underdog story, and that's what's gonna stick with you over the other ones.
1: And cinema at that time had been so bleak for a long time, mm-hmm. and so you know, I I could I could make arguments for each of these movies being atop the other, but at the end of the day, it's just an incredible slate of movies. If you, had a, if you had a weekend where you watched Network, Rocky, Taxi Driver, and this, mm-hmm. that's a hell of a weekend of movie watching.
0: Well, that's right. a fabulous movie watching. But yeah, the one that's going to stick with you is Rocky.
1: I mean, I would disagree. I love Rocky. There's some movies I would probably stick with me more. Here's but the... I get it. But I get it. And I get why Academy voters were like, oh, thank God, a story with some hope. <laughs> well, it's just it's a different...
0: It's a different and and also when you look at all of these it's a really different story. It is. So it's the one that pulls your attention and also pulls more at your heartstrings a little yep. bit. Um so yeah like I I ain't mad and this is a good competition. Yeah. It is.
1: But it's it stands up there with all of these as one of the best movies. Mm-hmm. All right, trivia because we still got a lot to get through. <laughs> oh jeez. During the six-minute single take with Redford on the phone, Redford did accidentally call the person he was talking to by the wrong name. He stays in character. It seems genuine. They left it in the final cut. Director of photography Gordon Willis shot that scene using a split-focus diopter, just like a lineless bifocal lens. Mm -hmm. He put it on its side with the separator positioned vertically against the pillar behind Redford, so that it would conceal its presence in the shot. Hmm. Now, the way you notice that, they, that he's using this is that the ceiling lights are blurry while Redford is in focus. And the typewriter in the left foreground is actually out of focus, while the ceiling tiles in the background on the left are in focus. Hmm. So it's like a whole weird camera setup. But the idea was to draw everything to Redford and subtly obscure what was behind him. When using this, actors can barely move in the shot. Uh-huh. Had Redford moved at any point wildly while he's on the phone, one of his elbows would be in focus with the other one blurred. And by doing this, and he used it throughout the movie, especially, for, again, for the shots of like having them in the back typewriting with the, with the TV in front, He did this and mounted it on his camera so that he could move in and out of shots without cutting. Love it. So he could keep continuity the whole time. Mm. The actual garage where Woodward met Deep Throat was underneath the Oak Hill office building in Rosslyn, Virginia. A plaque detailing the events and the investigation's impact was placed there, and plans were made to pay tribute to their, their discussions and their time in a new building when the original office building was torn down. So I don't know if that happened later on, but I believe there, there is a site in Virginia where you can find something that says, this is where Bob Woodward and Deep Throat spoke about the Watergate scandal.
0: That's pretty cool, though.
1: The first instance of the score of this movie does not appear until 28 minutes into the film. Mm. It is pure background sound. Love it. Two regular readers and subscribers to The Post included two major figures in the Watergate scandal. (laughs) And to be fair, it makes sense. It's the paper of record for Washington, D.C., so it's not like everybody else wasn't reading it either. One was Judge John J. Sirica, who oversaw the trials of Hunt, Liddy, McCord, and the four other Watergate burglars. He threatened them with hard prison if they refused to cooperate, and used his position in the bench to get issuance of the White House tapes. Mm -hmm. He pushed the limits as hard as he could because he said, we're getting this done. I'm revealing this shit. This is bad. And I will say, one of the only reasons this happened was because there were Republicans who were so pissed off at what the Nixon administration did. Because again, they were fucking sloppy. People Hmm. within power are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt if you do a good job lying about it. They really are, and especially when they're on your party. Mhm. These guys were so fucking sloppy about it. And even then, they tried over and over again to protect the next guy up the chain. <laughs> Until eventually they were ready to impeach Nixon, and when they got to impeachment, they knew it was like the reason Nixon resigned was simply because enough Republicans were like Yes, we will throw him out of office. Yeah. And that's when he finally went, fuck it, I can't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's the only reason. So again, it just comes down to they were so, so dumb in how they went about this. And it was so badly botched from everybody that that's the only reason this happened. But that's why a lot of the key figures in making it happen were Republicans, because the Democrats weren't going to get it done. Nixon had a mandate. He won this yeah. election like 70 to 30. Sure. It was nuts. So it was it was going to require the actual Republican Party to get him out. Mm-hmm. The other figure who regularly read the post was Sam Irvin, a blue dog Democratic senator from North Carolina and the Senate Authority on Constitutional Law, who was given the task of chairing the Senate Watergate Committee. Those are some big figures, big hitters, reading Woodward and Bernstein every day. Mm -hmm. There's some very fun stories about when the actors were observing the workings of the post. One time, Robert Redford was standing in a hallway, and a group of high school students on tour started taking pictures of Robert Redford because it's movie star Robert Redford. Sure. Right then, Bob Woodward walked by in the office, and Redford looked at them and went, Wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's the real Bob Woodward, the guy I'm playing in the movie. Don't you want to take a picture of him? The students went, No. And then they kept walking. (laughs) I I love teenagers. (laughs) The great equalizers. Mm -hmm. Poor Bob Woodward. (laughs) Uh, Hoffman also remembered being asked by the science reporter at the Post to get a new typewriter ribbon for him. Because of Hoffman's hair and his casual dress while observing, the reporter mistook him for a copy boy. Mm -hmm. And Jason Robards only spent one day shadowing Ben Bradley. Oh, wow. Yeah, per Bradley's widow, quote, he left and never came back, but he absolutely got Ben. Unquote. He just watched, observed for one day, and was like, "All right, I got it." Mm -hmm. I think Jason Robards and Ben Bradley are like secretly the same person. That feels right to me. Originally, the film was rated R, quite possibly because they used the word "fuck" ten times in the movie. Just a lot for 1976. Yeah. However. Most likely because of the historical significance, they argued a PG rating from the MPAA. Mm -hmm. And rightfully so. This was too important a movie. And I do like that some of that is the use of rat fucking in context.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like that word was not said just to be glib. That word was actually reported. So it's like, yeah, it's a crude term, but that's literally what they called it. And it was important because it shaped the public's view of like, they're doing what in our political stuff? And guess what, there's still rat fucking elections today. (laughs) Of course there is. When he was 13 years old, Redford actually met Richard Nixon, receiving an award for his athletic prowess from the then California politician. Redford said that even then, he seemed really fucking creepy. And rightfully so, Tricky Dick was a creepy fucking dude. The film does make reference to the break-in of Daniel Ellsberg's office in an attempt to discredit him, it's mentioned because they're worried about the potential implications of these two guys reporting being wrong, mm-hmm. because the Daniel Ellsberg shit nearly sunk the post. <laughs> they had to go to the Supreme Court to save their newspaper. Mm-hmm. It was later revealed that Hunt and Liddy broke into Daniel Ellsberg's office, authorized by Ehrlichman, Nixon's chief domestic policy advisor. So Creep also fucked with the Pentagon paper shit. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's and that's where we get Deep Throat being like, it goes so much deeper than you can even imagine. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just elections that they were doing. It was yeah. all sorts of slimy shit. Mm-hmm. To ensure equal billing for the film, Redford was given billing over Hoffman on posters and trailers, while Hoffman was giving billing above Redford in the film itself. Mm. This is the same arrangement that was used in The Man Who Shot Liberty, Valance, with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. I think that's fair. That's a a negotiation way to do it, but you've got two actors who are pretty much the same box office draw, Mm -hmm. so you need a way to differentiate the billing (laughs) so that everybody's got the right agency. The phone number that Redford dials for the White House is the actual White House switchboard number, 202-456-1414. I don't feel bad about giving that phone number out because it's public.
0: Yeah, it's a public number. Yeah, yeah which is probably why they used it. You know, that's why it's not a 555 number. It's yeah, a, like, you have to go the- through
1: the switchboard to get to the person's office who you want to talk to. Like, it's just the way yeah. it works. And finally, while filming in D.C., Redford stayed at the Watergate okay, hotel. hotel. Of
0: course he did.
1: And that brings us to our ratings for this film. For every film, we have a specific rating system. For this one... Hmm... Are we going to go red markers, red pens for Bradley marking up the stories?
0: I like red pen. Red pen's good. Yeah.
1: I thought about rat fuckings, yeah. but like that's not really a thing. No.
0: Let's go red <laughs> pens. How many red pens? All right. Pens?
1: Red pens. This is my movie. Yes. Seen it before. A lot of these are my movie, of course. Sure. If I go with my gut, I'm just going with a five. Hmm. I keep I keep thinking about, you know, is, it, is there things that haven't kind of aged right or is there mm-hmm. some weirdness? No man. Why? It's just an immaculately crafted movie. Yeah. It's not necessarily like wildly inventive, but that's not the point. Mm-hmm. And they take a really important story and provide it with context that makes it really digestible for a lot more people. Mm-hmm. Cause if you wanted to follow the Watergate reporting, it gets really weird because there's so many names getting thrown around. And it can, give, it, it can make you completely dizzy. But again, the book does a great job. And then this movie does an even better job of letting you see it through just two normal dudes. Maybe a little more than normal because they're really mm-hmm. good reporters. Yeah. But still, two guys who are just connecting all the dots. And slowly but surely, you see the whole picture unravel. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on their A-game. Everybody knows the seriousness of the story they're telling, but they're also committed to making it really entertaining, too. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And all of that together just makes it such a great movie. It's not just a great historical artifact. It's also just a really fun movie to watch and really watchable. And like, this is a movie you could watch again and again and again, because there's little new things to pick out each time and little fun moments to be like, oh, yeah, it's so cool. That's five. I I, I got nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is a five. It's good with the history. It's interesting. It's well written. It's still funny. It's brilliantly acted and directed. There's I have no notes. I have no notes, which, you know, doesn't happen very often. But like this this movie is awesome. And yeah, I, I am slightly interested to read the book. We'll see if I ever do. But I, I am interested to be like, okay, I want to know the nuts and bolts of the next piece. Like, I know eventually what happens. But what are the nuts and bolts of that?
1: I promise you it's worth it. Because uh, even even Nixon's weirdness doesn't get you into the weirdness of, mm-hmm. like, G. Gordon Liddy. yeah, And, like, the bullshit and the CIA bullshit going on within it and all the just... It 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 just goes down into this entire circle of what the fuck were all these guys thinking? Mm-hmm. It's just great, <laughs> and that's it. That's our history series. Holy shit, we got to watch a lot of really good movies. We did this.
0: We there were a lot of great ones this time.
1: I mean, not every history movie is great. Some of them do a really bad job. They sure. just do. They they do a yeah. terrible job. They reframe history. Part of why I enjoyed doing this was I wanted to pick out ones that some of them that I knew were good, but, not, but, but might be pretty bad with the history mm-hmm. and some that I didn't know anything about. And I was like, oh, God. But I think the really fun part is picking out movies that, you know, things like the Battle of Algiers, where it's a story you know nothing about and you're getting to see it from a really cool perspective. There's lots of those movies out there. And, you know, not just these big ones like all the president's men. There's lots of these little movies about little moments in history that nobody talks about that are so brilliantly done. Mm-hmm. And I, I I definitely think this is a series we're going to keep coming back to for more. Mostly yeah. These were all really good. Yeah. <laughs> Except for a man for all seasons. Good Lord. What a boring movie.
0: Boring. Cool story. Yeah. Boring as fuck.
1: All right. All right. We're coming up to the end of the year.
0: Oh, OK. Well, yeah. So that can only mean one thing.
1: We got a review.
0: Oh, yes. We have to. We'll do our annual look back at the movies we watched this year. Mm-hmm. Um, our highs, our lows, our surprises.
1: Get um, into a little bit of uh, where we think awards might be headed, even though yeah. we're still real early.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of like we peaked. We've kind of also reached a part where I was like, we've seen literally everything at this point. Of of as of recording this, it's like we had no movie to go see this weekend.
1: I know, and then watch January come. It's like, oh god, there's too many.
0: Uh, then it's like, all right, we'll settle in. We're doing three movies in one day. Okay, fuck, <laughs>
1: we've done it before. We'll do it again. Well, but yeah, got to um, talk about that. And then we have some fun surprises for what's coming in the next year.
0: Yeah, well, I well, I think we're gonna get a, a jump start because uh, the 2023 Oscars are a little bit earlier this year. Oh boy! So that means our Oscar series is gonna have to start just a smidgen early for us to get it all in.
1: So yeah, lots of fun stuff coming. Mm-hmm. So until next time, have a good movie.